I remember back in the fall of 2019, before Turkey came to support the GNA, GNA forces were in a very difficult position because, you know, the Wagner mercenaries were far more superior than what the GNA is used to, to fight. They kind of changed uh, the tide into Haftar's advantage. Welcome to the Slavic Connection. This is Tom, and I'm here as always, pretty much as always, with Matt. Howdy, everyone. And today we interviewed a fellow UT LBJ student, Mohamed Abu Falga. Mohamed hails from Misrata, Libya. He was a Brumley fellow at UT and last year's LBJ graduation speaker. And Matt, we we get into pretty much everything Libya in this episode. It's a very interesting kind of geopolitical uh, moment, but also a conflict that you know has kind of slipped off the internet national radar. So I think it's good that we're, you know, bringing some attention to it. And this obviously, of course, personal to Muhammad hailing from the area. And without any further ado. It's not a typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. So we were discussing how to cover this because this is obviously not something you can cover in a single podcast. Well, I mean, I think that we should we should start by saying the story of how this even came about. So Tom wrote me on Twitter with a screenshot of Muhammad's profile. And he's like, do you know this guy? I was like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was like my TA and he's a good friend. And, you know, yeah, of course I know him. I mean, he knows all about Libya and he's like, we should have him on the pod. And I was like, yeah, for sure. You know, there's just not enough that gets out in detail about what's going on in Libya and this conflict that's been going on for so long. I mean, unfortunately, due to time constraints, we won't get into the, you know, overthrow of Gaddafi and the very early start of this whole saga. But I mean, I think it would be really nice just to start off for our listeners, if you could just tell us the current crisis between these two competing major factions, right? The Haftar's faction and the government of national accord, how we got to this point. So back in 2014, Haftar launched a campaign, military campaign, under the banner of fighting terrorism. He was supported by foreign actors, mainly the United Arab Emirates and, and Egypt. And to a, lot of, to a lot of Libyans, this came as some sort of counter-revolutionary campaign, just similar to, to what was happening in, uh, in Egypt around the same time, you know, the, basically the, the rise of uh, Abdel Fattah Sisi. So that's how, that's how Haftar came to the national stage, I guess. Before that, he was a known military officer, but it was on February 14th of 2014 that he actually became kind of like a, like a problematic figure in, in Libya to, to, to a lot of Libyans. So fast forward after the launch of, the, of his campaign, kind of like a counter campaign emerged in uh, Western Libya, basically to prevent Haftar's allies in Western Libya from capturing the capital city of Tripoli. And that counter campaign was called Fajr Libya or Libya Down, and was mainly revolutionary and Islamist, you know, supported by the Muslim Brotherhood and, and all these, these factions. These two campaigns divided the country into two sides. And for geographic reasons, if you know, Libya has basically uh, an east and a a west, and between them, there isn't much going on. There is the oil field, but basically the 
you know the dense populated area are in the in the two sides, not in, not in the in the middle. So because of that, the can the country kind of got divided into two sides, east and and west. That continued for for a long time, for over a year, and then the United Nations, through its U- U support mission in Libya, they launched a national dialogue process in uh, in 2015. And that process ended with basically the establishment of the Government of National Accord in December of, of 2015. The Government of National Accord came to Tripoli in spring of 2016, and that's how they, that's how they came to power, basically. What happened between 2016 and 2019 is that we had some um, periods of, of calmness. At some point, we had ISIL and the GNA uh, had a had a battle for seven months, I believe, with ISIL. But basically, between Haftar's side and the GNA, there was some sort of, of calmness, and there were a lot of a lot of meetings, a lot of international conferences that had the uh, two leading figures of the two camps basically uh, come together. The United United Nations support mission in Libya, they they started a national process again in 2018 and they were aiming at basically bringing everyone into a national conference so they could kind of like end the transitional period and unify everyone under one government. And that conference was supposed to be held on April 15th of 2019. 11 days before the national conference, Haftar launched a military campaign basically to take Tripoli by force in order to strengthen his position and, and uh, in my view, establish an authoritarian rule in the country, just like he did in, in eastern Libya. So that's, that's what, uh, what caused the, the offensive in, in 2019. And that's where, we're at, that's where we're at right now. Is you have Haftar supported by Russia, United Arab Emirates, Egypt, France, and some other countries. And you have the government national accord supported by by Turkey and to a lesser degree Qatar. Today there is a stalemate in the central part of Libya because you know given the uh, Turkish support to to the GNA, uh, the GNA forces were able to push back Haftar's forces or as they're called the Libyan Arab Armored Forces. The GNA was, you know, able to push them back to the city of Sirte and the region of Al Jufra, both in the central part of Libya. And due to the, I guess, the interest of, of so many uh, international actors, no one moved beyond that point since, uh, since June. So as of today, we have, we have a stalemate for, I believe, yeah, almost like three months. And recently, the uh, kind of the two sides, they agreed to a ceasefire. Not Haftar personally, but the uh, the UN is trying to, you know, kind of propose this idea of demilitarized zone in in central Libya, where uh, the two sides would just, I guess, return or treat to their their regions. And before we get into the role of these international players, I think it would be really interesting to hear. You know, just domestically amongst the Libyan populace, who supports, you know, each side? Why? So like what kinds of people, I guess you could say, you know, philosophically, geographically, ideologically, whatever, support uh, the GNA and then which people support kind of Haftar uh, and his forces? So 
Haftar's forces are again they are centered or their their camp is basically in eastern Libya, so their support comes basically from eastern Libyans, you know, tribal people and and those sorts of groups, and they have support from some Salafis that we call in Libya we call them Madhalis because because of their their beliefs, you know, and their followership of a certain Saudi cleric. These are these are the people who support Haftar. In in the West, you have Western Libyans support mostly the the GNA, although you know you have some some disagreements uh, here and there, and you have a lot of uh, a lot of people from Eastern Libya who have been who have been displaced by Haftar's campaign into Western Libya who are also supporting uh, the GNA. Throughout the conflict, what has been sort of the social conditions? Because obviously there's been steady warfare, but you haven't seen the sort of massive military battles that you've seen somewhere like Syria. So, I mean, has there been some functioning of society or has it been kind of a waiting period for someone to establish political legitimacy or for the military conflict to totally end? So there hasn't been much going on. I mean, in in certain areas, you know, life is kind of normal, but both sides, both sides have sort of functioning governments, but they're both filled with, you know, corrupt bureaucrats. So in both sides of all all across the, the country, you have you have a lot of issues, you know, from a shortage in, in water supplies and electricity and in banknotes and, and liquidity and all these issues. So that yeah that's that's been going on for for months and um just recently a lot of people took to the streets basically to protest the 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 conditions that they've been in for so long. So I mean in my reading I got the perception that the Haftar's forces and the people that live there are more secular than the people in the GNA. So I mean how different are the ideologies between two sides and do you feel that one's vision for the future of Libya, that they're entirely different? Can you tell us about each side's vision for Libya? Okay, so in my view, this is one of the illusions uh, about the Libyan conflict, is that a lot of you know outsiders, what they try to do is basically frame the, uh, the issue in, in terms they understand, that is the ideological d- divide. Um, a lot of people argue, or some people argue that Haftar's vision is, is secular, but it's far from, from secular. I mean, if you go to the eastern side of Libya today, you have police forces who are, in Libyan terms, more extreme than the average Libyan person. You have Salafi forces, which are generally more extreme than uh, than other Islam or other religious groups. You have these Salafi groups supporting Haftar and running a lot of the internal affairs within the security apparatus there. So basically, to put it in 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 simple words, it, it's far from from secular. On the other side, you have some you know Islamist or factions from from political Islam supporting the the GNA. but they don't view the the GNA as you know as a, as a government that would you know, apply all Islamic rules is just like what you would imagine from, from just hearing the, the terms. So again, basically to summarize, it's, it's not really an ideological divide. A lot of people try to, to frame it that way, but I, I think they couldn't be more wrong. Wow, yeah, that's, that's really interesting and helpful. Tom, did you so, want to 
Yeah, do you think that's kind of a cynical ploy by outside actors to justify who they're supporting? Or do you think it's just a total misreading in the situation? So part of it is justifying. And part of it comes from the fact that Haftar at some point tried to kind of advertise himself or market himself as the, you know, nationalist, like, you know, the, the old Arab nationalism, a trend that was going on in the, in the 60s and 70s. And of course, you know, back then, some of the Arab nationalist dictators were, were secular, but Haftar is not, he, he's not doing the exact same, same thing that, the, they're, that they're doing. Again, uh, one of Haftar's main supporters are the, are the Salafis, and he got support from, from Saudi Arabia. And to me, it doesn't take a genius to understand that, you know, if those are your security tools, then you're not really, you're not really secular. One of the things that Haftar did, I think, a few months ago, or maybe last year, is that basically his, his government banned women from, from leaving the country without permission from their male guardians. And that's, this could be, couldn't be further from, from secularism. And just to go backwards a bit, is in my research, Haftar just comes across as this complete bizarre figure who's actually an American citizen and a former confidant <laughs> of uh, Gaddafi. So I'm curious if you could go into a little bit his background. And so I guess my question is, do you think he was kind of seen as the heir apparent following Gaddafi by the Western intervening countries? Or he just kind of had this opportunistic power grab and has used his reins on the military to take control? So Haftar, he was in the military when the military took over the country in 1969. And then he was a military officer in Gaddafi's military. He was one of the, one of the leading commanders in the war against Chad in the 80s. And then what happened is that Gaddafi kind of gave him up. You know, Gaddafi basically um, said that he, you know, he has no ties to, to this guy whatsoever. And Haftar got captured in, in Chad. And then through efforts from the uh, Libyan opposition at the time, they took him from Chad to, to the U.S. And, that's, and he used to live here for, for a long time, I think 20 years or something. And, and that's how he, he got U.S. citizenship. He came back to the country in, in 2011, so after the, the revolution against Gaddafi started. Again, Haftar still has some, you know, Arab nationalist beliefs. I, uh, I think one of the reasons why some foreign countries support him is, is because of that. He kind of uh, represents a return to, to the status quo, to, to a pre-2011 Arab world. And again, just, just like Sisi, in, uh, if, you, if you've watched the way he, he rose to power or, or to popularity, he basically repeating what, what Sisi did to, to a certain degree in, uh, in Egypt. His first uh, major appearance was again in, I remember on a Friday morning on February 14th of 2014. He came out on, on TV and he basically said that he's launching or he's uh, suspending the work of the, of the government and the parliament at the time because they weren't represent, they weren't listening to, to the public. So basically that's, that's the first thing he, he, he's done, you know, in a, in a major way. So again, yeah, to, uh, to answer your question, yeah, to, to a certain degree, he kind of, you know, represents a return to, to the status quo. That's why I believe that's to a large degree. That's why at least Egypt and the UAE uh, support him.
Yeah, and to follow up on that, there is a Slavic connection to this story because one of the most active actors in terms of boots on the ground has actually been Russia, which is very surprising because a lot of people would think, you know, what could possibly be Russia's interest to get involved here? Their presence has been pretty substantial. I mean, according to the United Nations, you know, it was at least a thousand people at one point. I think from the same UN report that there had been at least one military flight a day to airports where they bring in supplies. And this is all conducted by this very notorious Russian private mercenary group called the Wagner Group, who has activities all over the world. So I guess there's really three questions. The first is, what is the Russians' presence in Libya? The second is, why do you think they're doing it? And the third is, how do the Libyan people feel about having all these Russian people, like literally thousands, play part in this domestic conflict? Do they like that? So the Russian role is is kind of complicated. They came on the ground basically, or they, you know, they became kind of a known fact in 2019. But they've been before that. They've been in, you know, in Libya before that. Russia works, I think, in, in Libya in, in different, different paths. One of them is the military, which is, you know, you know, the Wagner Group. The Wagner Group have been in Libya since, um, I think, October of 2018. At first, they were supporting or they providing technical support to Haftar's forces. And then they joined the military operations in 2019 following the, the attack on Tripoli. And yes, they, I think they had at least 1,200 you know, mercenaries from the, from the Wagner Group. And at least one of them was, was killed at some point and his body was, was found by the, by the GNA forces. So what the, the Wagner Group currently are located in, in Sirte and Al-Jufra. And they, when they came in to the conflict or to the war, they kind of changed the, the tide into Haftar's advantage. And I remember back in, in the fall of 2019, before the Turkish support or the Turkey, Turkey came to support the GNA, GNA forces were in a very difficult position because, you know, the Wagner mercenaries were far more superior than what the GNA is used to, to fight. So that's one path. The other one is, remember Russia, or Russia does not really like the idea of the of intervention and uh, interventions in general. So uh, although they didn't veto the, you know, the intervention in Libya in 2011, they still feel to a large degree betrayed by the international community and by the US because the intervention was executed in a different way than it was supposed to be or at least what the what the Russians understood it to be. So what Russia has been trying to do is basically harness support for one of Gaddafi's sons. They sent some, I don't know if it's analysts or researchers to kind of do research on the ground. And these two Russians got arrested and they are still held in Libya. And you know, it's kind of, it's a, it's a big problem for, for Russia and they, they keep bringing that up every single time they have a chance. So I'm assuming one of the reasons why they, they support Haftar is, be, is because Haftar is supported by the followers of, of Gaddafi's son or basically the Gaddafi's remaining loyalists. So, so that's, one, that's one of the reasons why, uh, why they support him. And Haftar and the Haftar-Russian relationship has been going on for at least five years now. They've been in contact since, since 2015. <laughs> 
And I mean, this is something that Matt and I have debated, but why do you think Russia is leaning on their private military contractors instead of something like Syria, where they had a very formal intervention with, you know, a huge Air Force contingent? Now, the difference there is there really wasn't a formal opposition to Russian Air Force in Syria. That's probably not the case in Libya. Do you think they're being pragmatic and knowing that they won't lose a lot of men by putting boots on the ground? Or do you think by leaning on private military contractors, they're trying to avoid the international attention? So like you said, they were there for years, but it wasn't until 2019 when they're like, oh, yeah, I guess we're there. Well, I'm not I'm not an expert on Russia, so I should ask you this question, but I pretend to be one, too. So, I mean, it's fine. <laughs> I honestly don't know, but one of the one of the differences between their operations in Libya and uh, in Syria is that at least you know in their in their view, in Syria they're supporting Bashar Assad, who is in their view the legitimate government. In Libya, Haftar is not really the the legitimate government. They can't make that argument. So that's one that's one key difference. Maybe it contributed to to the way they to the tactic they used. I am not sure if that's the case or not, but that's that's just one one uh, one difference. And the second thing is, I'm not really sure how committed Russia is, basically how they how committed they are to to supporting Haftar that they are willing to send their official or formal formal military to aid him. I'm not I'm not sure. I think you're hinting at a good point, and you know maybe. Tom and I can go back and forth on this, but I mean, I'm I'm of the opinion that Russia's geopolitical interests couldn't be that large in Libya. And I don't, I mean, of course, in, in the best case perspective, that they, they would want to be rewarded with like a, a port or something, a military base in Libya, but I don't think that'll happen. And so, I mean, if you think about it, it seems very difficult to understand like, what their interest could be. And I think that it kind of get back to basically what you were saying at the beginning, which was just that they want to make this a big embarrassment for U.S. foreign policy, right? They want to draw out this conflict because, I mean, it's not just for an international audience, but for a domestic audience in Russia, it's very important for them to say, look how disastrous American foreign policy, look at how they made this decision. And now these wars go on for years and years and years. And if they can do things to extend a conflict, then you know that they feel that that's in their interest. What, what do you think about that? Exactly. Yeah, and uh, I think earlier this year, Putin in a in a press conference, he said there are no Russians in in Libya, and I think he said something to the effect of that if they are, they, then they don't represent the, the Russian state. And if you listen to the the statements of the um, Russian representative in the in the UN, he continuously, you know, denies any Russian involvement. And every time he has a chance, every single time he has a chance, he always takes the Libyan issue back to 2011 and that the U.S. basically destroyed the destroyed the country. So that's I guess that's one of the reasons why they're not sending uh, their military there. And this is what Matt and I were talking about off air. It is hard to talk about this without going back to 2011. I think we started in 2014. And, you know, if you look online, it's like there was the first civil war and the second civil war. Do you think it's actually reasonable to divorce the two events? Do you see this as just one continuing movement that started when the NATO intervention occurred? This is, yeah, this is a difficult question, honestly. To a, to a certain degree, I see it as a, you know, as a one kind of continuous war. But I always distinguish between what happened in 2011 and what happened in 2014. And that is between between those these two wars, we had two good years um, by Libyan standards. 2012 and 2013, we had one government 
we had one parliament, although, you know, things weren't great, by comparison, they were much better, much better than, than what happened afterwards. I think what mainly caused the uh, 2014 uh, war, or the 2014 conflict, is that some factions or some parties supported by foreign actors, they kind of, you know, tried, they were trying basically to take us back to kind of status quo because the mostly Islamists, you know, and the Muslim Brotherhoods were kind of like rising at the time and they were trying to copy and paste what happened in, in Egypt. So to a, to a certain degree, I, I, I try to, you know, put what happened in 20, 2011 aside. Like, of course, you know, that's when the bigger problem started. That is, that's when the uh, state was kind of damaged to a large degree. But that's not, I don't see it as the main reason why we're, we're here today. So, yeah, I, w- I want to get back to this question of how the Libyan people perceive the role of foreign powers and I guess most prominently Russia in this. I mean, do people not care that, you know, Russia is getting involved and is sending troops? Is it something that's used in the, the messaging and in the media? Is it talked about? Why are there foreign people uh, mercenaries on our soil? You know, and are they saying, is that good? Is that bad? Etc. So I guess... When the when the the news about mercenaries emerged, a lot of people were uncomfortable. And then you know, as the war continued, you know, you, if they're in your side, uh, you you know, you're kind of even if you're not okay with it, you know, you try not to think about it that much. But you still give the other side hard time because they're supporting mercenaries. And uh, I'm saying this, and I I'm one of the people who who do, who does that, you know. Now that the war kind of stopped to, to a degree. A lot of people are questioning the, the presence of, of foreign uh, mercenaries. And what you have today is not just the Russian mercenaries. You have Russian, you have Syrians on both sides. Syrians sent by, brought by Turkey and Syrians brought by Russia. You have Sudanese, you have Chadians. And there are news about uh, Yemeni mercenaries as well brought by, by the United Arab Emirates. So, you know, that's, that's a lot of mercenaries to have in, in one country, plus the, the Libyan fighters, of course. So a lot of people are, are uncomfortable. And I, although I don't really have like solid numbers on, you know, who's supporting who and, you know, who's kind of angry about the presence of who. But I would say, I would say Libyans are, again, uncomfortable because that, that's, the, that's one of the first thing we talk about every single time there's talk about talk about a political solution. One of the main points is that okay, we gotta stop. We gotta have a ceasefire, and we need to take the mercenaries out of the country. And I'd like to quickly talk about Turkey's involvement too, as we've been focusing them quite a bit. And we saw in Idlib in 2018 how they pretty much played spoiler to Russia and Assad, totally controlling the northwestern portion of Syria. What do you think their motives are in backing the GNA? Are they playing spoiler to Russia again as a great international game? Or do you think they actually see something in that leadership that they'd actually prefer to be in charge? So again, it's it's a difficult question, but here's here's part of part of the answer at least. Turkey, since Sisi got to, to power in 2013, Turkey kind of had this you know, they kind of severed their relations with uh, with Egypt. Having Haftar control Libya, that means another country. 
that they will lose. They will lose, you know, to the UAE, Saudi, Egypt, Egypt uh, bloc in, in the region. So that's one of the reasons why they don't want Haftar to, to come to power. Another reason is that Libya and Turkey have, they have this sort of special relationship. One of our main economic partners is, is Turkey. Turkish company, a lot of Turkish companies work in, in Libya. A lot of Libyans, you know, go back and forth to Turkey. So to Libyans, Turkey is very important. And to Turkey, to, Tur- to Turkish people, Libya is very important. What they did in um, November of last year is that they signed two memorandums with, the, with Libya. One on maritime borders, basically to, you know, for the East Mediterranean region and the other one on security. I think the first one, the maritime border agreement with, for Turkey is one of, one of the main motives why they would come to, to support the, the GNA. Haftar would never grant them such agreement. And to Turkey, that agreement is kind of like essential because it helps them in their fight against, you know, Egypt and, and Greece and Cyprus, basically to, you know, kind of mark their, their territory in the, in the region where there's, you know, you know, there's a lot of natural gas, a lot of resources in, in East Mediterranean. So they're trying to basically maximize their, their gains through an agreement with the, with the GNA. Some people say there's an ideological agreement. There probably is some, but I don't see it as the main motive why, why Turkey would support or to rescue the, the GNA. I mean, Tom, I don't know how much more you have, but I mean, I, I definitely have a big uh, a can of worms to open. Well, I mean, I almost feel bad we're asking you these impossible questions about this ongoing conflict. And, you know, if, you, we, if we had all the answers, we wouldn't be on this podcast. But yeah, I guess it's time for you to spew some worms, Matt. So, yeah, I mean, two big questions. I mean, what would your your ideal scenario for resolving this conflict? And then the second question is, how do you predict this conflict will actually develop? I think uh, given the circumstances, an ideal scenario would be kind of going into some sort of national conference where you have the two sides come together with a lot of other actors, Libyan actors, to kind of agree on some sort of, of a vision for the future of the country. Now, in such a conference, there's one, to me, that's one, there's one thing that must be done, which is basically to not to reward those who spoiled, you know, previous initiatives. On April 15th of 2019, we had this national conference scheduled to be held. And the UN worked so hard to get this conference, you know, to be organized. But then 11 days before that, you have Haftar launching the, his offensive. So in a future, you know, or an upcoming conference should not or must not reward people like Haftar who spoiled the initiative before by inviting them. Now, how would you do that? I think it would require a lot of diplomatic pressure from mainly from the international community on, on Haftar, on his regional backers on Egypt and, and the UAE to kind of distance them themselves from, from Haftar. What we see right now is that since June, you have Haftar's position diminishing and you have another actor kind of rising up. And that guy is the Speaker of the House of Representatives, who's also on Haftar's side. But now he's, you know, he's being empowered by, by certain, certain countries to kind of take over Haftar's position as kind of leader of that camp. 
the guy is not is not the best around. He's he's one of the worst actually, but still he's better than he's better than Haftar. What you have today though is that some countries, mainly the United Arab Emirates, kind of holding on to to Haftar and emboldening him to spoil even the ceasefire initiatives. You know the simple initiatives that the the speaker is trying to take. To answer your question, ideally we'll have a national conference. We'll have the two uh, sides. We have a lot of other local actors also coming to to an agreement. And one major outcome, I guess, to to come out of this of this conference should be some sort of uh, new structure where we bypass the the current government or the current uh, political entities because they've they've failed miserably over the past years. I don't see any success coming out of these the same bodies being recycled in uh, in any way or form. You know, that's what you think should happen. But what do you think will happen? What's kind of your prediction for how things will go in the next uh, half year or longer? So now there's like a lot of work from the American and German sides. They're trying to kind of push this ceasefire, this demilitarized zone plans. What I think would happen is that in in, in some way they would recycle uh, what we have right now. They will recycle the GNA, they will recycle the House of Representatives. And they're going to give them, you know, kind of like a, not a new chance, but give them some, some time to supposedly lead the, the country into parliamentary and presidential elections. I don't know if that will succeed. I, I really doubt that such idea will, will succeed or benefit the Libyans in general. But it might be easier than what I'm hoping for. Well, Mohammed, you've been very generous with your time and dealing with our crossfire questions about Libya. I do want to ask quickly, though, what you're doing now. I know you're doing research at Princeton. Maybe tell us a little bit about your work, or your current work. Yeah, so um, currently I'm working uh, with the Arab Barometer at Princeton. What we do is we conduct surveys of countries in the Middle East and, uh, and North Africa, including Libya. These surveys mostly on uh, on attitudes toward you know certain toward several issues, about government, religion, institutions in the country, and you know other issues as well. It's a very insightful project. There's a lot to I guess there's a lot to learn from from the results of uh, of the surveys, and uh, one of them is basically the like the perception of the public on foreign backers or foreign countries meddling in uh, in the country. So we have we have a survey actually being carried out right now in Libya and I'm, I'm looking forward to, to see the results and basically to be to be precise to see the results on you know what people think on which country presents kind of like the the biggest threat to to Libya maybe Russia yeah, would be one of them I don't know we'll see yeah I, I certainly think so well you'll definitely have to send those results to us uh, when they come out so we can you know post them along with the podcast Mohammed, right. um, thank you so much this has been really enlightening for us I hope I, I gave you guys some answers. No, you did. You did. Yeah, I'm glad we finally got a chance to cover this because I was looking at this a lot this summer. Yeah, it's a, it's a mess, but what can we do? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the thing. It's like, you know, you talk about it and it's, it's hard just to not forget about just how gigantic a human tragedy it is yeah. um, because we're so far away from it. Um, yeah. But no. Yeah, you, I think you helped us. I'm glad. Anytime. Thank you for listening. You can follow Mohammed on Twitter. We'll be sure to attach his handle to this episode, and hopefully he'll be back on the show to talk about some of his research. As always, please like, rate, 
whatever you can do to support the show. It's incredibly easy to like. You go to your phone, you open up your $800 phone and you click on podcast and you click on ours and you scroll down and it takes two seconds and you press a button. If you can download this episode and listen to it, you can also rate it and review it. You're probably related write that to review. If you're you know, why not just write that review? Everybody's got that review. They've been kicking around for a while and they just want to put down, put to paper. It's so important. And you can't take two seconds to write a review for your son, mom. You know, if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. So please support the show. We love making it. Hope you like listening to it. Until next time. <laughs> the views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Welcome to the Slavic Connection. I'm here today with Matt. Howdy, everyone. And we interviewed a fellow LBJ student, now graduate, Mohammed uh, Abu Falga. Abu Falga, yes. Abu Falga. The oh, well, we, we have to restart over. I said fuck. Okay, okay. So. <laughs> you thought that was good enough to continue. Okay. Well, no, I was like, I was like, well, we can just cut out. <laughs> okay. Mohammed Abu Fagga. Mohammed hails from Miss La- Miss Miss Rada. It's not hard. Miss Rada, right? No, dude, that's another start over. Don't try it. Okay. Everything is going extremely well. Wow, slick as always. We should you should just change your name. Are you Steve, Steve Slick, Slick should adopt you or something, man? Stop laughing, Michelle.